0: So parasitology, it starts with organisms as as small as a single cell that may infect an erythrocyte. This is the leading cause of infectious disease death in children under age 5 in Africa. This would be known as otherwise malaria. And it can extend with an organism that starts from the bottom of that slide and goes all the way to this Tibetan man's foot, a very large 10-meter or longer Organism. This is Tinea saginata, beef tapeworm. Sometimes they look like scary B grade movie actors on electron microscopy that are going to gnaw your innards, and sometimes they look like gummy old men that will just kind of suck at your insides. They're scary little animals that are vectors of these things. What's this thing that's in the forearm of one of my friends? Let's actually extract it and Why, this is myiasis. It's in a larva, another form of of a parasitic infection. Well, I've heard about parasites that wander across the eye itself. If you're lucky enough, you might be able to see it actually extracted. This will make you sit up. (laughs) Nothing bothers you more than something around your eye. But there's also these worms, draconculiasis or guinea worm that comes out of the foot I've heard about. Thankfully, Carter Center and others are involved with nearly eradicating this. Why, they can wander across your feet. They can even go out your backside or come out your backside if you happen to be in the right place. But remember what I said at the beginning. It's all a matter of perspective. A worm, an abscess, it's an infection. So let me give you a case of a U.S. child, three years old. Parents are working. He has chronic diarrhea and particularly foul-smelling stools. Now he's having weight loss and failure to thrive. Noted by the pediatrician, the child attends a daycare center. This is a risk factor for this infection. What's the diagnosis? What's the treatment? So I throw that out to you because this is the only time I'm going to talk about one protozoa. What protozoa tends to give you very foul-smelling stool, Giardia? Now, how many in this audience have had Giardia? Come on, raise your hands. I love it because I give these lectures... um, all throughout, and there's not usually that many people who raise their hands. So either it's Christian honesty or you guys are doing more travel. <laughs> but Giardia, how can you tell when you have Giardia? Giardia is unique among many of the intestinal parasitic infections in that it is a non-bloody stool. It, it will always be non-bloody. Vomiting is extremely rare with Giardia. The stool has a very characteristic frothy, bubbly um, quality to it. It's almost like, I don't mean to be too graphic, but, hey, I'm a, I'm a pediatrician, so when you are pediatricians and a parent, for that matter, you deal with poop. So let's just get over it. It's like somebody blew bubbles through the stool. It's frothy. It's bubbly. It is very characteristic in its smell, which smells like rotten eggs or sulfur. Um, and so... It's a protozoa, and it exists in all climates and countries, and at least half of all people who are infected are asymptomatic. I've been tested in the past and and found to be an asymptomatic shedder of Giardia, and I've also had it and been very symptomatic with it. Vomiting, as I said, is uncommon, so the kid or the adult who comes in with sudden onset during travel of vomiting and diarrhea is almost never Giardia. It's either traveler's diarrhea and or toxogenic E. coli or Campylobacter or it's a rotavirus or other viral gastro, but it's not Giardia. Fever is extremely rare. Don't think about Giardia or work it up in somebody who's febrile, having diarrhea. How do you diagnose this? Ovum parasite, you know, just a simple stool microscopy. Uh, In the United States, we're using Giardia antigens that are rapid tests, much more um, sensitive and specific. And the treatment is metronidazole, though there is problems with metronidazole because, A, it tastes bad. Can't drink your beer with metronidazole um, very easily. It's a longer course of therapy, um, and there's treatment failures that occur due to um, resistance that's episodic. Tinidazole is a drug that's been used in Europe for 50 years um, and in Asia. It was FDA approved about three years ago. It's a wonder drug. I love it for Giardia. 50 mg per kilo, single dose. Children or adults, max is two grams. One shot, it has a much higher cure rate. It's also effective for amoebiasis and trichomonas, two other protozoas. So, there's also another drug that um, I will use in people who fail with tinidazole, and it's nitazoxanide. It also has a, uh, certain other antiparasitics, and it's a, it's a drug available in the United States. Um, we use it for cryptosporidium, which is another protozoa. So, giardia, froth, um, bloating, gas. Frothy diarrhea, foul smelling, it can be chronic, it can be recurrent, it can be acute, it can come and go. It can, all Giardia can do that. It can be asymptomatic. Fevers rare, vomiting is rare. True story, I was in Laos doing some teaching in Vientiane about three years ago, and I came down with Giardia. I knew it, it was Giardia. Wonderful way to sort of learn the tiles on the bathroom floor because of your hotel room because you're spending so much time on the pot and you're just staring. And every time you get up and start to walk away, you run back to the toilet. So what do I do? I trot down to the local pharmacy and I buy tinidazole. And I took it, two grams. I have experience. I've had it in the past. I've prescribed it to many people. And lo and behold, I didn't get better. One week later, I'm still having giardia. In fact, I'm so lightheaded and faint. And by now, I've lost over 10 pounds Love it, except that it was primarily water weight, that I'm um, having a hard time making rounds with the residents. So I go back to the same pharmacy, I buy the same drug, and the second time I'm better within 24 hours. I'm a walking new man. I was a fool. I waited a whole week. But I took the same drug, same pharmacy, so why did the second time make a difference and the first time failed? Important lesson here. Any ideas? Very good. Counterfeit drug. And that is a huge problem in Africa and in Asia. In some surveys in Nairobi or in Nigeria, 25% of the anti-malarial drugs purchased in local pharmacies was nothing more than counterfeit, even though it had all the official packaging. So the difference was I went back to the same pharmacy, but I said, last time was an Indian manufacturer. I want this Chinese manufactured tinazole. I took it, and it did the job. So you've all treated parasitic infection, and By the way, that is one of the reasons why, for travelers, I very much recommend that you go with your drugs beforehand, including antimalarials. When I do a lot of pre-travel medicine, you know what? These Somalis are smart. They know that they can buy mefloquine at a fraction of the price over there in Nairobi as in the United States. The problem is they don't know if they're going to get the real drug there. And so I urge people to get their drugs before they go when they're doing short-term or travels. Yeah. Oh, you can see it in the infancy years, first year of life. Yeah, it's, but it's fecal-oral, so they've got to be crawling around or somebody has to be fixing their hand, or it's contaminated food as well. So you've treated, for those of you who work in the medical field, you've treated parasitic infections at home. Trichomonas, a protozoa that's sexually transmitted disease. Giardia, as we've said. Helminths, which are pinworms. And ectoparasites, which are scabies. These are parasitic infections. There's nothing that says parasites are over there. Somehow we're sanitized and sterile of them here. So let's review parasitic infections in humans. There's protozoa. They are, by definition, single-celled. Malaria, Giardia, and Tamoeba histolytica are examples of protozoa. You can break all parasitic infections up into these three categories. There's helminths, which come from the Greek word helminths, which means literally worm. It's a worm infection. And then there's ectoparasites. An example would be scabies or lice. Body lice, head lice, are examples of ectoparasites. That's parasitic infections, 101. To go a little further, parasitic helminths. You can divide them up into three groups. There's trematodes that are flukes, and these usually have a much more complex structure. Um, often they're hermaphroditic. They can, but not always. They can um, exist in the venous system as in the case of schistosomiasis, which is the number one neglected tropical disease killer in the world. There's biliary tracts, and there's lung trematodes, which these are some examples of the names. There's cestodes, or tapeworms, or flatworms. They're segmented. They don't have a a mouth or a gut. They absorb their nutrition through their skin. Tinea saginata, beef tapeworm. Taenia solium, pork tapeworm. It's called beef and pork tapeworm because the intermediate part of the life cycle lives in those animals. The adults live only in humans. Um, pork tapeworm, Taenia solium, is one of the primary causes of, un- of um, uh, febrile seizures on a global basis. And then hymenolepsis nana, which I ran out of space. So that's just beach nana. And then nematodes or roundworms. These are intestinal in the case of the ones we're going to talk about, but they can occur in blood or lymphatics or subcutaneous, as in the case of filariasis, onchocerciasis, or loa loa, the one I showed you that went across the um, African's eyes. Intestinal blood and venous helmets comprise a large amount of what is termed in the world literature, neglected tropical diseases. And what are the neglected tropical diseases? They're a group of 13, give or take a couple, depends on who's doing the numbering and counting, of parasitic and bacterial infections, and one viral infection, that affect at least a billion people globally. Neglected tropical diseases flourish where there is poverty. These are diseases that are most intimately linked with the poorest of the poor. And they result in lost wages and disability and impaired cognition and schooling. Most individuals who have a neglected tropical disease are going to earn less than $2 a day. And children disproportionately are overwhelmingly affected by NTDs. They, in short, stigmatize, they debilitate, they deform, and they kill. And so, how do we measure the impact of neglected tropical diseases? This is going to relate very much to the intestinal parasites I'm going to talk about, because they fall in the NTD category. NTDs, we measure their public health impact in disability-adjusted life years. And these are years of healthy life otherwise lost as a result of disability from that disease or premature death. So what's the global burden of NTDs? About 60 million people, um, sorry, about 60 million disability-adjusted life years are lost every year globally due to these group of diseases. If you compare that to lower respiratory tract infections, Um, pneumonia, for example, HIV, depression, diarrhea, ischemic heart disease, which is a burden of westernized countries, and more so the developing world also. Those outrank NTDs, but NTDs are above cerebrovascular diseases, stroke, for example, malaria, traffic accidents, and even TBs. But look at, those are the ones that get a lot of international attention and resources. They're fun, they're sexy, people like to To fund it, this is the one that actually, if you look at the actual annual funding per disability-adjusted life year saved, look at how much money we put into diabetes and cardiovascular disease and HIV and TB. And NTDs itself, $0.62 on the dollar. $0.62 per disability-adjusted life year is how much funding this gets. So it's a big burden and relatively little funding. What's the association with poverty? There's disfigurement, impaired childhood and growth development, adverse pregnancy outcomes, reduced productive capacity. In short, these diseases occur among the poor and they perpetuate the cycle of poverty. In Kenya, for example, deworming in some communities could, in effect on independent studies by the United Nations, raise the per capita earnings by 30%. How? You, you actually get rid of the source of of intestinal parasite that's actually robbing of nutrition and growth and causing anemia. Um, In India, lymphatic filariasis alone causes at least 1.5 billion loss in gross national product per year, and that was way more historically. And in Japan, one of the the successful deworming programs of the 1950s post-World War II was one important contributant to the subsequent economic boom of, of Japan that occurred afterwards how it's very little to, to actually um, do treatment for neglected tropical diseases. There's a rapid impact packet that consists of abendazole or mebendazole, and then ivermectin, and then praziquantel or DEC, and you put that together, and then azithromycin, and, and that rapid impact packet costs less than 50 cents a year in contrast to the cost of these other drugs. So what are the neglected tropical diseases? There's soil transmitted helmets, there's schistosomiasis, lymphatic filariasis, trachoma, one of the leading causes of blindness in the world disproportionately affecting women and children, onchocerciasis, and then Borrelia ulcer, Leishmania, Chagas, leprosy, African sleeping sickness, guinea worm which has nearly eradicated dengue virus. So these are the neglected tropical diseases. So what we're gonna talk about is the, primarily the soil transmitted helmets, the intestinal nematodes. We're going to specifically talk about the global burden, the life cycle, the clinical presentation, and how you treat them. Review some of these anti-homalithic drugs. What are some public health interventions that people can do? And then for this time, I'll raise that intriguing question. Are they always all that bad? These, in the pediatric world, are the common pediatric intestinal parasites. There you have them, the ones that we see. Now, there's working dogs in this world, and there are playing dogs. <laughs> and... This next one is going to be an, a, an infection that I'm going to put more in the playing category. It doesn't cause a whole lot of problems. Let's look at this in This um, video of this young woman who was being scoped. She was about 14, 12 years old. She was being scoped. And if you notice, pay attention. I've got to see where my laser pointer is. Can mm-hmm. I do have a laser pointer here somewhere, but by the time I find it, the video will be done. Can you see in there trying to remove it? Yeah. So there, there you have one that's moving. Uh, this gastroenterologist was rather intrigued by this. They were scoping this girl for other reasons. She, they thought she had intestinal tuberculosis, and they noticed this, and they managed to get it off. Uh, that's a... Not a very cost-effective form of treatment. (laughs) But what is this? This is actually pinworms. And it's the gravid female pinworm. She lives about four to ten weeks. She measures about a centimeter in length, about a millimeter, a half a millimeter wide. Nocturnally, she will migrate to the perianal folds, the perirectal folds, and she will um, rupture her uterus and expel about 10,000 very sticky eggs that will... Stick to the perirectal folds, and after four to six hours of oxygen exposure, there's embryonation, and then there's reinfection by you scratch your bum, you put your fingers in your mouth. These eggs also stick to bedding, and other family members are infected as well. This is pinworm. I guarantee you in a room this size, probably 15% of you had pinworm as a child, maybe more. Maybe some of you have it right now and you just don't want to admit it. You know, there are two different personality types in the world there's the relaxed anal sphincter and there's the tight anal sphincter. And unfortunately, both are infected. Your relative sphincter strength does not influence whether this worm can come out and lay her eggs. So, if you have pinworm, there's no eosinophilia. The treatment is exceedingly simple. One dose of either albendazole or mabendazole. Pick your drug. There's no resistance to mabendazole. You repeat the dose in two weeks because the drug kills the adult one. If there's still eggs, there could be opportunity for reinfection and larva to hatch and to repeat the cycle. So two weeks later, you eradicate any new um, repeat infection. And then if there's family members that are all sharing in the same room, I usually will treat the other children. And oftentimes overseas, there's so much cohabitation, you try to treat everyone. Okay, so that's pinworm. That's the plain dog. But these are the neglected tropical diseases. ascariasis or roundworm, trichuriasis or whipworm, and hookworm infection. I refer to them as the unholy trinity, um, these three, because... Why? They result in tremendous amount of stunting, anemia, loss of IQ, and diminished school performance. It's, it's estimated that those three worms alone result in 200 million years of primary schooling loss globally because kids are too sick, too weak, too growth and nutritionally stunted from these infections to actually get to school. What's the global prevalence estimated with these geo helmets? And you're going to hear the term geo, meaning dirt and earth, you're going to hear soil-transmitted helmets. You're going to hear soil-transmitted nematodes. It's all the same. The global prevalence, about 800 million, close to a billion people affected with ascoriasis. Trichoriasis, or whipworm, is about 600 million. And hookworm is just a hair underneath that, still over half a billion people. The infection rates and burden of disease are greatest among poverty and poor sanitation. Do I sound like a broken record here? So... The average time when you shed these eggs to where they become infective in the soil is three to four weeks. And their cycle of infection occurs either through consumption of contaminated soil with eggs in it, as in the case of Ascaris or Trichuris, which is whipworm, or through skin penetration. We'll review the life cycles. So all three of these and for that matter, strongeloides, which I'll talk about at the end if I have time, all of those require a cycle of human host shed in the stool, being in the soil, embryonating, becoming infective, and then repeating. What's the implication? There's no human-to-human transmission with any of these. You're not going to get these infections by sharing a bathroom with your friend who had roundworm. The, set, the general facts about these soil-transplant helmets, they're frequently nonspecific symptoms, and they become asymptomatic as the worm burden becomes large. majority of those people who have the infection are not going to be symptomatic. Those who live in conditions of poverty with highest burdens, they're the ones that are symptomatic, at which time you start to have weight loss, GI discomfort. Acute diarrhea is actually quite an uncommon presentation for these infections. And fever is very uncommon for these there's also a principle of polyparasitism. If you have one, you likely have more than one. Lastly, there's a tropical and subtropical predominance to these. And they don't multiply in the host. With the exception, I've given you only three of the intestinal parasitic infections I know, excluding protozoa, um, of the intestinal worms that actually can re- complete their entire life cycle in the, in the human and never have to leave you. I.e., there's There's actually no end to potential length of your infection. But in every other circumstance, the infection is limited to the lifespan of the worm, unless there's ongoing reinfection that occurs. And so what's the lifespan of all of the soil transmitted helmets I just referred to? One to seven years, depending on which one we're talking about. What that means is if you were raised as a child in Niger, and you come to the States, and you were a Dirt-loving, ground-eating, um, crawling-all-around child. And you've been in the States for 10 years. You're not, I don't even need to screen you for those soil-transmitted helmets. I would probably screen you for strongyloides if you had eosinophilia. But I don't need to screen you for the other things because you've already cleared your infection. There's no opportunity for ongoing reinfection that's occurring in the States, partly because of temperature, climate, partly because of sanitation. So what is the parasitic prevalence in Of these things, this was a a colleague of mine did this study in in this one village in Guatemala. And look at Ascaris, Trichuris, hookworm, and Strongyloides, and the prevalence by age group here of 80% plus had Ascaris, 60% or so had whipworm, Trichuris, or Trichuris, and hookworm was still very common as well, about half of them. Strongyloides was lower, but that's a very much harder one to diagnose. So we're going to talk about these individual ones. Ascaris, roundworm, this is it. It's the largest of the nematodes. It gets up to 40 centimeters long. It infects the cell... It, um, lives as an inhabitant of the small intestine, primarily the jejunum. There's an obligatory extra-intestinal migration to its life cycle, during which time you have eosinophilia, and after that you don't have eosinophilia, unless there's ongoing continual infection. It lives quite short, one to two years, and the intensity of infection is greatest with Ascaris in children ages 5 to 10. Let's review the life cycle, because this is a principle here. If I can find my, my laser pointer again. Um, so we'll start with the fact that I'm, um, shedding the eggs in my feces that are going into the soil, spending four to six weeks embryonating in warm, moist conditions. Then through either contamination of food or on my hands or, or such, the eggs are ingested, um, where they will enter into my small intestine. They will they will hatch, the larva will emerge out of the small intestine, into the lymphatics, and in the venous return system, go to the up the portal venous system, into the right side of the heart, and get into the lungs. By that point it's only been four days. In the lungs, they will go through another process for about a week of molting and development, and then the larva will hatch, rupture out of the alveoli, or out of the um, capillaries of the lungs get into the alveoli, migrate up, you don't even know it, you don't feel it, up the bronchoepith- um, bronchotracheal tree, over the epiglottis, you'll swallow it, it will get back into the intestine, and now it's the adult, and it spends the rest of its life there. As an adult, it's not going to cause eosinophilia. During this, this period of a time that lasts about a week is when there is going to be eosinophilia, and there may be a transient pneumonitis in the lungs as well. So... This is junior. This is a patient that I, I took care of in Peru. This is junior. This is teenagers. This is mom and dad, different sizes by the time it's in the GI tract. The female Ascaris is the most prolific egg layer of any nematode or helmet that you'll ever come across. She will lay, for her one to two year lifespan, 200,000 plus eggs per day her entire life. These eggs are incredibly They live an average of six years. They survive dehydration, chlorination, desiccation, you name it. They can live a long time. They could actually survive a Minnesota winter, freeze and thaw, seriously. Um, But people aren't defecating that I know of, at least in Minnesota, and the soil with Ascaris, so we have interrupted this um, cycle in medicine there's a term called the prepatent period. It's a time between infection of an individual with a parasite and the first ability to detect the parasite. When we talk about nematodes, it's a time from when you are infected until the adult female worm begins to produce eggs or larva that you can find in the stool. And what's the prepatent period of ascaris? It's two to three months. And that's pretty much true for all of these intestinal worms I'm talking about. Two to three months means from when when you were infected to when you actually can detect it in a stool. What's the implication of that for all of you travelers? If you are hypochondriac and think that you have to test your stool after the last trip that you took to Cambodia, well, at least wait two to three months. Because I can't tell you anything when when you just got off the airplane about what's actually going on in your body. This is a little guy uh, in Brazil. He decided to put up little worms on a pin board, just like my daughter does that with butterflies. He actually got 81 ascaris that he passed that he put on the pin board. A photographer in Brazil took that photo, put it in the local newspaper. This is about 60 years ago. Massive response of people went to public health centers to get treated for ascaris. So you can do unusual things with those worms if you really want. <laughs> um, people are asymptomatic unless there's a moderate intensity of infection. There's the larval phase. We talk about the adult phase. And the adult phase is going to result in nutritional malabsorption and impaired growth, mild abdominal discomfort. And as it gets larger and larger, the burden of infection, particularly in children, they can start to develop small bowel obstruction. As few as 60 worms can result in a small bowel obstruction in, in children where there's this bolus of worms. Um, and it can also result in volvulus as well there's a phenomenon we mainly see in adults we don't see in children called wandering hepatobiliary pancreatic ascariasis where the ascaris worm will migrate up through the ampulla of water, up the common bile duct, for example, or into the pancreatic duct, and result in acute onset of biliary tract obstruction, cholangitis, pancreatitis, and can even get up in the liver and result in an abscess. The treatment is exceedingly simple. It's just one dose of of albendazole. And I have got this great video of wandering Ascaris and how they pulled it out of the ampulla of Vodder, but I don't have time to show it to you. I'm realizing I have too much. I know, but I have other videos, too. I think we have to skip them all. Um, Ascaris, if someone ever says to you that they vomited or coughed up a worm that they can actually, it's ascaris. There's no other one that's going to be. This was an 83-year-old chemotherapy patient in um, South America who, on chemotherapy, had nausea, vomiting, and passed and vomited up this worm. These worms are exquisitely sensitive to their host environment in simple things like february high fevers in children, anesthesia will cause them to sometimes migrate out of their host. So kids that are on anesthetic going in for surgery or febrile seizures, if you're working overseas, you actually may see them sort of pass in their stool. This is an example of a gastrographin enema small, small bowel follow through um, um, where you can actually see the contrast and you see these filling de- defects here that represent a ball of ascaris. Uh, resulting in intestinal obstruction. This was a, a post-mortem uh, segment of intestines that was removed that shows an ascaris ball. It's thought about 20,000 children a year um, die of, of small bowel obstruction from ascaris. So this is the typical environment that you might see it in, in per- Paraguay or Haiti, sort of rural poverty, lots of soil, but it also exists in urban poor settings as well. Contrary to popular belief, little children... With large tummies doesn't mean that they have a worm infection. Okay, that's, kids just have big tummies. As you get dehydrated, your organs stay, I mean, as you get malnourished, your organs stay large relative to your extremities, and your tummy looks proportionally bigger. They have exaggerated lordos, lordosis of their back. I, I've heard it said more than once, oh, that kid with a big belly must have worms. No. But that child in that environment could have them. Whipworm. Whipworm is the other one of the soil transmitted helmets. It's a neglected tropical disease. This one is unique of all of the ones we're going to talk about in that it lives in the cecum and colorectum. It's a large colon um, worm. It doesn't live in the small bowel. Um, It lives, there's no extra intestinal phase of its life. It lives about one to three years. Ninety percent of people who have this infection are asymptomatic. But the symptoms begin when you start having a heavy infection, and the intensity of your infection increases by age – and peaks by age 10. In contrast to Ascaris, if you really want to clear this one with a high success rate, you have to treat for three days, not one day, with mebendazole or Albendazole. So you ingest the egg. It hatches in the small intestine. The larvae migrate down to the colorectum region or the colon, and they embed into the colon, and they mature and that's their lifespan. It's called whipworm for a reason. It almost looks like a whip. And the very, th- um, the thick part here will insert itself as a worm in between the columnar epithelial junction going in between each cell and leaves part of its tail out. And it can look like this, like a little whip. In very heavy infections, this is the one that will cause diarrhea and can mimic a colitis or an amoebiasis with very heavy infections. Um, So because it produces a lot of mucousy, bloody diarrhea. So people who have very heavy trichoriasis will develop a colitis. Lower levels of infection may have physical weakness. Anything that has anemia as a product, whether lost through colon or sucking of blood in the case of hookworm, has the potential for profound cognitive deficits to occur in children stunted growth, chronic abdominal pain. This is one that can give a sort of chronic diarrhea that's mucousy, watery, or bloody. So while I said earlier that the net, like Ascaris doesn't give you diarrhea. This one with heavy infection can. There's a colitis and then there's a rectal prolapse that is rare but seen in children as well. This is an example of rectal prolapse. Why do you get rectal prolapse with whipworm? It's because, I told you, it lives in the rectum, the colon. It it embeds itself in in the Uh, Intercolumnar spaces. It produces a lot of localized inflammation that can happen, and you get this sense of rectal fullness. You feel like you have, you know, a poop that needs to come out all the time. And these little kids are constantly valsalving, you know, they're bearing down and they weaken their their anal sphincter and eventually they prolapse it. And you can actually see all these little what looks like white strings on the on the rectal mucosa is actually whipworm. It has a very characteristic egg with a bipolar plug. Okay, those are, the, those are Ascaris whipworm. Hookworm is the one that deserves the most attention. And this is a case of a lady with hookworm. 28 years old, Paraguayan, second trimester of her third pregnancy. She reports dyspnea, unexertion, and extreme fatigue. She lives in a very poor rural area of Paraguay, and she works in the fields tending the family vegetable farm. And she has come to you in the remote health care clinic for the treatment of yellow disease. In China pre-communism, this hookworm was called the yellow man's or lazy man's disease. And I'll tell you why you kind of get a yellowish appearance to your skin with a severe hookworm. The fact that she works in a family vegetable garden, her age, her pregnancy, all of those are risk factors for hookworm. Her skin has this yellowish color and pallor. There's edema on her face and lower limbs. But with the yellowish appearance of her skin, her sclera are non ectaric. So you know that this is not Jaundice occurring. She has a murmur, but her PMI, her uh, point of maximal in, uh, impulse or her apical beat is not enlarged. So she doesn't seem to be in congestive heart failure. And then, of course, she has a palpable uterus, but there's no organomegaly. She is pregnant after all. Her labs, she's, she's um, got a normal white count, a little bit of eosinophilia. Her absolute eosinophil count is 585. Take that by typing 9% of 6,500. Normal would be less than 500. She's anemic. And then she's got slightly elevated platelets. Her steam, stool hemocult is positive. A malaria smear. She's pregnant. She's anemic. She's in a malarial area. They checked it. it was negative. And what disease? How does her location, age, and gender increase the risk? How do you treat it? We'll cover that. These are the human hookworms. And this is ancillostoma. Uh, ancillostoma. And this is uh, Necator americana. Um, Ancelostoma and Necator are the two species of human hookworm. One tenth of the world's population is infected with this hookworm. It's a significant global cause of anemia and protein malnutrition. It lives in the small intestine. The lifespan differs depending on Ancylostoma, which is actually the one that causes the most blood loss, lives shorter. Necator americana. Um, lives longer but doesn't actually take as much blood. And this is unique to the other two in that the intensity of infection increases with age rather than decreases. So whereas Ascaris and Trichuris or Trichuris, people will say differently, peak around age 10 in children, this one, and then they decline thereafter, but adults can have infection, this this one rises into your late 20s. And why is that? It's because of how you get it. How do you get whipworm and ascaris? Fecal oral, right? How do you get hookworm? It penetrates your skin. And it's the fact that it penetrates your skin, it's an occupational hazard. When people are out there working in the fields, which children are sometimes in countries in school, the people working are the ones that are getting exposed. So, what is the life cycle? You actually, let's start with the adult. You're shedding the, um, the oh, eggs in your stool. The eggs will enter the soil. They will embryonate over four to six weeks. And then larvae hatch. That's the difference. Larvae will actually hatch in the soil, not in the intestines. And the larvae will migrate up sticks, branches, soil, and they remain developmentally arrested. Just kind of waiting there like a tick waits to attach to a human host, larva waits to penetrate the human host of hookworm. They penetrate where the skin follicles are, and uh, where the hair follicles are. They penetrate your skin, they enter into your capillaries and your venous system, they get to the lungs, they go through molting, they hatch, they migrate up the tracheobronchial, the bronchotracheal tree, you swallow it, and the rest, they finish their life in the intestinal tract. And What is the global burden? I said about 600 million. This one, because it requires soil and it's a particular kind of soil, soft, sandy soil, this is a a rural disease much more than an urban. You're going to see much higher rates of hookworm in rural parts of Africa compared to the inner city slums where there's more concrete. You're going to see more uh, ascaris and whipworm, not as much hookworm. 44 million pregnant women are infected. It results in iron deficiency anemia. So there's um, some statistics out there, if you took it, how much hookworm is actually stealing blood globally? And if you took all the people in the world that have hookworm and how much blood is being lost, you could take a city like Austin, Texas, and take everybody that lives in Austin, Texas, and take all of their blood, the whole city, everyone's blood, remove it, that's how much blood is being lost on a global basis every day with hookworm. So, what does it do? It attaches to the small intestine, it has a grinding plate, it it using negative pressure will suck a plug of um, mucosa out of the intestines, and then it will transit blood out through its intestinal tract. This is a side view of it. And while it's sucking blood off of the mucosa of your small intestine, it's producing hemoglobinases, anti clotting factors, antiplatelet factors, um, and it can suck one worm anywhere between 30 and 200 microliters, is 0.2 cc's of blood per day per hookworm with the resultant intestinal blood loss and iron deficiency anemia that happens. This is what it would look like in situ. There's about one centimeter. These worms only lay a fraction, less than 10% of the amount of eggs per day that Ascaris does. And its clinical features, with a primary infection, if you've never had it before, you'll get a ground itch where it penetrates your skin. You get abdominal discomfort, diarrhea. As few as 40 worms can result in iron deficiency anemia, Extreme fatigue, mis-schooling, lost wages. This is the bad player. This is what the egg will look like in your stool. And so why do you get kind of yellowish appearance? Well, A, you're losing lots of blood, so you're anemic. B, you lose a lot of protein. Because even after those worms die, all of the attachment sites where they were at remain necrotic and ooze protein. And so you lose a lot of blood protein as well. And in fact, it can mimic Quashia core in a really severely infected child. They can just be edematous and, and weak as well. They have a protein-losing enteropathy with heavy, heavy infections. And who's at risk? Women and children. At baseline, they have the lowest iron stores. Children are at risk because with the anemia, they have cognitive deficits and intellectual retardation. There's a very high association between your, your level of anemia and your subsequent IQ as a child physical growth stunting, and then pregnant women as well because they have ongoing issues already of of puberty, menstruation, and pregnancy. Women who have heavy hookworm infections have lower birth weight babies, higher infant mortality rate, and higher maternal mortality rate. And this is just to give you an idea If you look at the eggs per gram of feces and you count them, so you're doing a quantitative analysis on how many eggs are being shed as a proxy for what your level of hookworm infection is. When you start getting up to around 8,000 eggs of hookworm per gram of your feces, that represents more than 10 milligrams per gram of feces of blood, fecal heme, present. And that is more than double the daily intake that's required for adults and children to maintain iron. So you're already losing twice the iron rate of the median recommended um, iron requirement. And what's the effect of that on IQ when you control for all other variables, including socioeconomic economic factors? Heavy hookworm infections result in a median loss of IQ of about 14. I don't know about you, but I'd love those 14 points back in my brain. So it is a significant cause of um, cognitive deficits. When you deworm someone um, periodically, you can have a tremendous resultant improvement in their growth curve, as is in this child who is being periodically treated for soil-transmitted helmets. How, how often is frequently? Every six months. So we're going to end up on some public <coughs> health stuff here. Um, Morbidity control through worming. And WHO in 2001 adopted a resolution aimed at deworming 75% of all at-risk school children by age 2010. What was the goal? Improved iron stores and hemoglobin status, improved cognitive performance and educational achievement, reduction in school uh, absenteeism. People who have heavy hookworm infection, by the way, have a 40% reduction in their earning capacity because they're so weak they don't work well, they don't earn um, Reduction in in community health transmission. And women in their second and third trimester were recommended to be also dewormed in areas of heavy infection for any of these soil transmitted helmets uh, because of the risk of maternal anemia, birth weight, and infant mortality. So how did they do? 2001, 75%. In reality, by 2009, there had been an achievement of 31% of global children ages 1 to 15 who were getting preventive chemotherapy for these soil transmitted helmets. So they missed the mark by a long ways. Well, what are the drugs that we use to treat intestinal nematodes? Well, I would like to say that vegetable Kemp's pastilles for expelling worms from the system works, but it doesn't. This is an old uh, advertisement. There are really two that you have options to use, albendazole and mabendazole. They block a beta-tubulin structure and assembly in the worm. They inhibit the glucose uptake in the worm, and usually the death takes... Days after you get it. It takes a few days. I got a great videotape footage of a person that we saw the worm in the small intestine, treated him, and then five days later it's moving really slowly near the end of death, and they actually took it out through endoscopy purposes. But again, you don't use endoscopy to get rid of these worms, you just treat them. Um, albenazole has a better GI absorption, a very high tissue distribution, and is used for tissue migrating larvae like visceral larva migraines, cutaneous larva migrans. Albendazole is a superior drug for deworming, but it's more expensive and not as readily available. You take it with food, always, to improve the bioavailability of it. Mabendazole is much more poorly absorbed, and the activity is confined to adult worms. So you'll kill the adults, but if you happen to be still in, being in the middle of those infections and you have migrating larva in the lungs, lymphatics, you're not going to get rid of those. We don't use Mabendazole for uh, some of the... Um, Infections where adults are accidental hosts of, in the case of visceral larva migrans. And both are safe in kids over age one, and probably safe in under age one. It's just not been studied. What about pregnancy? Can I use albendazole? Yes. If your soil-transmitted helminth rate exceeds 20%, the recommendations are still in communities to treat all pregnant women in the second or third trimester with albendazole. So we avoid it in the first trimester, but you can use albendazole and mabendazole in the second and third trimester. And use during breastfeeding is perfectly okay with these drugs. So the dosing for mabendazole is a twice a day for three doses, or 500 milligrams once. And it's the same dose for kids, irregardless of size after age one and adults. Whereas albendazole, it's for Ascaris and hookworm, it's one dose. One shot, very high cure rates. And for whipworm, it really needs three days if you run it, completely eradicate it. And when we deal with kids that are between 12 months and 24 months, we have that dose. And we avoid it in the first trimester of pregnancy. And I'm out of time, but I'm just going to throw out this little website, which I'm fascinated by, called This this Wormy World. It is actually a compilation of NGOs and epidemiologists who are doing surveillance on where these helminthic infections are occurring. You can go to any part of the world. Asia is coming online soon. Africa is already online. You can look at the, the country that you're going to and look at the predicted prevalence of these of hookworm or any other worm that you want to pick. Um, and you can see what the prevalence is. Then you can actually go on a country scale and they're improving it and you can pick the community you're going to look at and you can see what the cumulative prevalence of soil transmitted helmets are (laughs) because it varies intra-country depending on climate. Um, We're out of time. I'll just say that even when you deworm a community, reinfection rates are high. In hookworm, Children within 4 to 12 months are back at the same pre-treatment levels. In Ascaris, 50% of the population will be at their pre-treatment rate within a year. So you, it, it's, it's an injustice just to go in there, throw wor- uh, meds, and leave. That's doing nothing for that community um, because the reinfection rates get right back to where they are. So you want to make a difference. Also, work on building latrines. That's a 14th century latrine in eastern Kenya, Low cost, minimal. You put it within 30 meters of the house. You help the families and community to embrace 30 meters of the house, 50 meters from the nearest running water supply. Um, These have been shown the most effective way at reducing soil transmitted helmets. All right. Thank you. I'm welcome to take questions afterwards if people want to come up here. Thank you.